Hey everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Gagne. Uh, how you feeling, Mark? I'm feeling good, Trevor. I feel like I feel like Pygmy Tony Hawk on a tech deck. Just rolling. Whoa, I feel like... How are you feeling? I feel like a pair of sunglasses with no frames. Ooh. <laughs> I don't even nice. think that's I don't even think that's possible. <laughs> Actually, you know what I you know what I've learned to do Wait, yeah, yeah. The, the uh, matrix sunglasses. Trick me. <laughs> I learned They're a not new sunglasses at that point. What's that? Yeah, but I learned a new term. <laughs> I learned a new term. You know the type of glasses that like clip onto your nose? That have no frames. Yeah. Those are called pincenez. <laughs> pincenez. Okay. Yeah, that's like that's like a new word that I learned. So, what's the game for this? A uh, this little week? bit of stuff. Uh, so, I don't really have a game for today, but to kick it off this week, um, so I asked Trevor to think of his top four places to read and why. You know, I figured we could take turns like we're picking teams or something and see who's got the best team, <laughs> and uh, no repeats. Okay. No repeats. So okay, so what once I it's did. Gone, it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. What I did was I chose four places, but I have two extra, just in case you stomp on mine. So we're gonna go yeah, one yeah. by one, one for yeah, one. Yeah, you go first. Okay, my first one is, uh, the beach. Oh, I the love. Beach. Okay. I love to read at the beach. Um, I constantly get I harassed. Get too much glare. I know too oh, much no. glare, but I like sunglasses, but also. I constantly get a ton of grief from my family because it's like you're sitting on the beach during vacation and I'm, all and I want to do is read. Not swimming? Yeah, and they're stuff. like, you can read anywhere else. Like, you can do anything. And I'm like, shut up. Like, I just want... Like, it's not true. It's a, That's actually like... I feel like that's one of the most insidious things that non-readers say where it's like, well, you can read anywhere. And it's like, no, you can't. That's the point. Like, you're on the beach. Yeah. You're good to go. Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. <clears throat> All right, uh, my first one. I'm I'm gonna go with this is a rare one, but I'm gonna go with uh, camping, like like not really. That's not not, 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 like, not a rare one because I put it down. Okay, all right. Uh, not not like a mine. campfire, <laughs> not like a campfire kind of thing, but like uh, the morning or whatever. You like wake up before everyone else. Like that's good shit. Yeah, dude. Like when you're that's like a good time. just tents around and a camping chair. Yeah, you and, get up at like six a.m. And it's also there's there. something about camping. There's something about camping where it's awesome because it's like the only option. Yeah, yeah, you're out of battery and <laughs> <laughs> out of everything. You remember when we, we um, yeah, <laughs> remember when we went to uh, Bar Harbor like however long like seven fucking years ago and we yeah. forgot to pack anything that was essential we went on a dude camping trip that's what happened yeah <laughs> where you like where basically you're like oh yeah we'll figure it out when we get there actually me and a friend of mine ben we were driving recently and we saw like a sedan with four guys in it like all four guys are in it and like uh like one thing of you know like one loaf of bread on the back seat window. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we know what you're doing. You unprepared, yeah, yeah. like. Those are the trips that aren't actually supposed to happen. They're just supposed to be like drunk plans or whatever. Yeah, and then you you're not supposed that. to actually go. Okay. I got my, All right, yeah. I, my number next, two. What do you got? My next thing is, um, I think I think it's awesome to read at a coffee shop, but it has to be on off peak hours. 
What's off so, peak? So, like, no morning rushes there and no, like, after work, like, people picking up. Like, basically, like, Mid-day. from 11 to... You know, like, if you have one of those weird days where you went to the doctor's office or something, or you went to the yeah. dentist, and then you're like... Retirement oh, hours? Yeah, retirement hours. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you're in a coffee nice. shop with your coffee, and no one, almost no one else is there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, number number two, appropriately, before it gets taken, I'm going to say on the john. You know, what can you say? It's a, wow. it's a fantastic place to read. Dude, I didn't uh, put that, but you are 100% <laughs> correct. Yeah, it's not the most, like, lengthy amount of time. <laughs> I don't know. It's not like you read a whole book, but... You know what, uh, though? You can even... you can accomplish so much. Like, if you, if you end up putting the Kindle app on your phone, because I have a Kindle, yeah, I but got I also that. I got have that. a Kindle app... And if you put the Kindle app on your phone and just sort of, you know, get a book that's easy to pick up and put down, like when you're using the bathroom, you will go through like a massive book and not even realize. <laughs> You'll be like, what? Yeah. So I remember I got <laughs> no this. No one can bother you. Yeah. Yeah. I got this historical biography that I wanted to read and I usually would not read that like a nonfiction behemoth and it's like 800 pages. But since I've been reading it on the Kindle and the Kindle app, it's like you just look down all of a sudden and you're 20% in. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. yeah. It made me think of like the bookstore episode of Seinfeld when George brings the book into the bathroom. Oh, yeah. And then it, gets, it gets flagged as a bathroom book. Yeah. Bathroom <laughs> book. Yeah. Do- that book has been in the bathroom. You can't even um, donate it to charity. Yeah. <laughs> all right, my next right, what one. You, what do you got, number three? My Since you took my camping one, my next one is, uh, this one isn't really a location, but it's a required accessory. And if, no matter what you're doing, where you are, if you're reading and a cat is accompanying you, that's it. Oh, like, you're reading some... with a cat. Purring action, maybe? Yeah, some, like, if he's on your leg, on your chest, like, sitting next to you on a couch, like, whatever, a companion while you download information into your brain. Nice. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, number three here. I'm going to go with on a train. Uh, long distance though, not not a subway, not subway. I mean, I don't have a lot of subway experience, but well, I, I wouldn't li- imagine I'd want to read. I mean, no, you, you actually, live in New York. you actually it? do, you do want to read. Like the the subway culture of reading is actually really advanced. Um, but no, you're completely right. Can you do long, it standing up? A long distance train, absolutely. But yeah, so subway is that's actually mentioned in. Uh, Thomas Pinchon, Pinchon, whatever we are deciding to call him nowadays. Yeah. That's mentioned in his book V, because that happens in New York City, and he calls it yo-yoing. The yo-yoing? Yeah, the yo-yoing. And he, like, yeah, you can get a lot. It's kind of like the whole bathroom thing. Like, you can get a lot of reading done on the subway, and you don't know it. But also, every New Yorker knows that going on the subway, choosing your book on the subway is like a fashion statement. Oh, you have to face the cover out, right? Yeah, like, I mean, not really that, but, like, if you, like, I feel like there are different, I'm going to sound pretentious, but I don't care. Like, there's different levels. There's sort of, like, oh, I'm going to, like, if you're reading, like, there's people who, like, read, like, erotica on the train, and you're like, okay, you're bold. But then there's other people who it's like, you know, 
there's a lot of people who will be reading like the Harry Potters and the Game of Thrones and stuff like that. And that might strike up conversations with people. But then it's also like it. I seriously do feel like it is a fashion statement. Like you <laughs> if you that. if you got your badass literature out, then, you know, you might invite some some friends to come and talk to you. Yeah. So, um, okay. but yeah, definitely a long distance train ride. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that. I can't read in the car though. So I can't read in the car either. Car I, w- I, I've desperately wanted to train myself to be able to do it when someone else is awesome. driving. Yeah. That's um, tough. That would be great, but I just can't do it. <laughs> All right. What do you got for number four? Last one. My last number four, um, is again sort of a mood thing not really based on location but you're indoors you are dry you are comfortable and it's raining outside so just like rainstorm yeah completely like you don't need anything you're 100 percent prepared like there's you know what i mean like the state of mind when nothing is on your mind like you don't have to go out of the house to do laundry you don't have to go anywhere to do anything and does uh yeah does a thunderstorm make it better or is that take away from it yes a thunderstorm for me makes okay. it better definitely because it's like well, <laughs> i think saying, I... the thunderbolts are gonna Sorry. come like when the thunderbolts are gonna come when in important parts it's just bound to happen some good shit happens yeah <laughs> i like that like uh being snowed in kind of thing i think yeah. that's like decides yeah. it even more like you're stuck yep that's a good one I like how we're such big readers, but it's still a factor for us to be like, there's nothing else to do. Like you can't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's like, that's like when the norms read, when the people who don't yeah. read that much read, but all right. <laughs> all right. Uh, my last one is uh, Old Faithful, just uh, in bed before you go to bed. Oh, uh, I saw, That's I, where I do 99% of my reading. Uh, you know, it helps me fall asleep. Yeah. I had the opposite. I had in reserve. I had um, sometimes I go to bed and purposely put the book like right next to me so that I'm going to when I wake up, I read it. Oh, in the morning? Shit. Yeah. So sometimes I'm a morning reader more than a night reader. It's kind of good. Like you should strategize it one day. You just put the bed like (laughs) right next to where you're going to wake up and go for it. Okay. Yeah. I I use it as a utility to fall asleep. You know, I I kind of keep going and I'll like eventually just stop kind of registering the words I'm looking at. It just the letters once, once the letters start like floating around and then I just put it down, I close my eyes and I turn off the light without opening them. And then I try and keep them closed. Like, I don't know. What about, what about backtracking? (laughs) That works for me. What about backtracking? Like, do you ever find that when you read something during that hazy period and then you need to need to go back to it? Cause you, yeah, I already read this. I only ever, yeah, I only ever have to go back, like, a page, and then I'm good. Yeah. Nice. So what did you have? Uh, what were your reserves? My reserves were you took camping. You took camping, but I said in front of a fire. Like, not fire as in, like, the fire is your light for reading, but just, like, the fire is there. Yeah. I had that one in- indoors, like a wood stove. And you that's know, that's did... the only one that I didn't have to end up using because I said nice. everything else. My my last backup was um, on top of a massive pile of cash, large bills. <laughs> it's a fantastic place to read. Fantastic place to read. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Yeah, just me personally. 
Just yeah, just personally, I love my big pile of money <laughs> in my basement. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, okay. So now is the meat, the the meat and and potatoes of the podcast, the main section where Mark has a book that he's about to tell me about. I don't know which book he's going to do. I might have read it. I might know the author. I think this week he meant you mentioned you're particularly psyched. Yeah. And, you ready for um, a weird one? I'm ready for a weird one, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna blow your mind too. So, Mark, nice. take it take it away. All right, here we go. So, uh, as Ricky from the show Trailer Park Boys once said, "I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optometrist." He also <laughs> said, "One one man's garbage is another man person's good on garbage." Anyways, um, do you consider yourself an optimist? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I do consider myself an. I sometimes I need. I feel like I need to kind of. I've assumed the role of counseling friends and being like, "No, dude, just like, be it's it's fine." Uh, probably get nice. that from yeah. my mom. She's a huge optimist. Nice. I I think I'm I'm somewhat on the same side, you know, uh, but so I did some quick you know research on how someone can become more optimistic. Like, uh, you can reframe your stresses as opportunities to be positive you can practice mindfulness uh try to imagine your best possible self uh keep a gratitude journal get we rid ta- of we were talking about words uh, candide last week the best of all possible worlds <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that's sar- that's sarcastic on voltaire's part but uh, uh, sorry i continue so so that, that's actually a nice connection uh with voltaire but with, with what I'm going to be talking about. But anyway, so so the author that I want to talk about wouldn't be having any of that shit. <laughs> uh, any of those uh, mindfulness, uh, <laughs> gratitude journals. So he's probably the biggest cynic I can think of, but also, you know, one of the smartest. And uh, I'm so I'm talking about the, the Michael Jordan of miserable worldviews. Uh, none other than Ambrose Bierce, a.k.a. Bitter Bierce. Do you know of him? I have never heard of this human in my life. Oh, uh, I was going to ask you if you read An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge or heard of that. I do know his... that. I have read that. Yeah. 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 That's like, so that that's comes like... up in classes and stuff, right? Like that. Yeah. Cause yeah. it's like, you know, one of the best short stories ever. It's um, an amazing example of an American short story. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ambrose Spears, you know, he's been, uh, pigeonholed, you know, as a sort of lightweight humorist due to his most famous work, which is um, called The Devil's Dictionary, uh, which is amazing, by the way. I'm going to get to that later. Uh, But he was, you know, so much more than that. He was a journalist. He compiled some of the best war stories ever. Uh, He delved in, he even delved in surreal horror and science fiction as well, like in the, you know, late 1800s. Anyways, I want to talk about how he developed his famously pessimistic personality because that's, you know, what he was really known for. Okay, so what was he what, sharp wit? What was the frame of his life? You said late 1800s. Yeah. Uh, so he was born in 1842. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, I want to read something from a piece on the uh, New York Times opinion page titled Ambrose Bierce's Civil War. And this kind of talks about his life a little bit. Uh, so I'm going to kind of introduce him through this. Okay. So this is authored by Jim McWilliams, circa December 17th, 2013. Okay. 
Unlike his fellow satirist Mark Twain, who had only dabbled as a soldier for a few weeks in the summer of 1861 before deserting from his Confederate unit, Ambrose Bierce enlisted into the Union Army just days after President Lincoln issued a proclamation calling for volunteers. He went on to serve for nearly the duration of the war. He saw heavy combat in some of its bloodiest battles, including Shiloh, Chickamauga, and Missionary Ridge. Although Walt Whitman and Herman Melville, among others, wrote movingly about the traumas of combat, Bierce was the only major author to have actually been a frontline soldier in the Civil War. Born on June 24, 1842, in southern Ohio, Bierce was an 18-year-old when he enlisted into the 9th Indiana Volunteers on April 19, 1861. On July 11th, Bierce experienced his first heavy combat at the Battle of Rich Mountain, where he acquitted himself admirably. In fact, he received recognition for carrying a seriously wounded comrade to safety while under withering fire from the rebels. The 9th Indiana then moved south, eventually meeting Major General Ulysses S. Grant's Army of the Tennessee, which was camped at Pittsburgh Landing on the west bank of the Tennessee River. They arrived just in time for the Battle of Shiloh. At Shiloh, Bierce led his platoon of riflemen over the battlefield. Although he was shocked by the carnage, he kept an analytical mind, writing, The bark of these trees from the root upward to a height of 10 or 20 feet was so thickly pierced with bullets and grape that one could not have laid a hand on it without covering several punctures. None had escaped. How the human body survives a storm like this must be explained by the fact that it is exposed to it but a few moments at a time. Whereas these grand old trees had had no one to take their places from the rising to the going down of the sun, he wrote in one of his most famous essays, What I Saw of Shiloh. Two days at Shiloh made an indelible impression on Bierce. Many years later, for example, he would write a haunting autobiographical short story titled The Coup de Gras, which describes wounded men being burned alive in brush fires and wild pigs eating the corpses. As horrific as it had been, Shiloh would not be the bloodiest battle that Bierce would experience. During the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain in the June of 1864, a Confederate sniper took aim at an officer, leading a skirmish line well ahead of the main advance, and shot him in the head. He fell, seemingly dead. It was Bierce. The wound, luckily, wasn't fatal, although it was very severe. Somehow the bullet hit Bierce's left temple and then grooved its way beneath the skin and ended up behind his left ear. It remained in his head because it would be too dangerous to remove. After initial treatment, Bierce was sent home to Indiana on a medical furlough to recover. He would be prone to severe headaches, dizziness, and sudden fainting spells for the rest of his life. Although he had managed to survive the war, Bierce knew, as did many of his comrades, that his experience had permanently damaged him. So this guy, got, wrote years sh this guy later, got shot in the head. Yeah, and the bullet. Just, they couldn't take it out. Oh my god, okay. <laughs> in this, yeah. When I, <laughs> he wrote, When I ask myself what has become of Ambrose Bierce the youth, who fought at Chickamauga, I am bound to answer that he is dead. Bierce did, however, use his experience to write some of the finest short fiction of the later 19th century. Usually autobiographical, these narratives of warfare are typically told from a cynical, world-weary point of view that makes clear its, author, its author's skepticism that anything good resides in the human heart. Because of these stories, as well as his acerbic satire, The Devil's Dictionary, he became known as Bitter Bierce. And this is where it gets really crazy. <laughs> uh, this is oh, a it's not paragraph. crazy enough that our yeah, main yeah. hero's been shot in the head. <laughs> in the fall of 1913, when he was 71 years old, Bierce toured several Civil War battlefields before crossing into Mexico to observe 
Pancho Villa's revolutionary army soon after he disappeared. One legend has it that he was executed. Another suggests that he enlisted in Villa's forces and was killed in battle. Some acquaintances assume that he'd committed suicide, which he had threatened repeatedly through the years, but no trace of him has ever been found. Whoa. So, he, <laughs> he lived a very, very interesting life. Uh, he went from Civil War uh, veteran to, um, like, one of the main... Uh, contributors to newspapers in the West Coast um, to disappearing in Mexico without a trace. Mm-hmm. Um, a few more notes about him. He was the 10th of 13 children, uh, all with names starting with A. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in order, they were, I'm going to go fast, Abigail, Amelia, Anne, Addison, Aurelius, Augustus, Almeida, Andrew, Albert, Ambrose, Arthur, Adelia, and Aurelia. Who are all those people? Um, his brothers and sisters. Oh my god! <laughs> he had like a uh, Stephen Colbert family. Did you know that Colbert has like that many siblings? I think he's like got thirteen brothers oh, and sisters really? too. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing, he was once accused of assassinating President McKinley in 1901 uh, <laughs> because of a poem he published in 1900 that like kind of seemed to foreshadow the crime. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he disappeared into the desert without the tra- without a trace, so it's kind of hard to top that. Right. But anyways, that kind of talks a little bit about his life, um, why he might have been as bitter as he was, because uh, he wrote a lot of, um, he wrote a lot about the Civil War. He also experimented with a bunch of different genres, and his kind of bitterness and pessimism kind of bleeds through all of it. Um, So I kind of brought two books of his today. They're not traditional novels at all. Um, The first is the aforementioned Devil's Dictionary, which is alternately titled The Cynic's Word Book. Uh, It's a fake dictionary. And I'm just going to hit on it quick by reading some of my favorite definitions from it. So it's just a completely satirical dictionary. It's set up just like a regular one. Um, so it's really not something you read cover to cover, but it's nice to like pick up and, and take a look at some of the words and, uh, it's pretty funny and really, you know, sarcastic. And, uh, so yeah, here's just some examples from it. Uh, dice noun, small polka dotted cubes of ivory constructed like a lawyer to lie on any side, but commonly on the wrong one. Education noun. That which discloses to the wise and disguises from the foolish their lack of understanding. <laughs> uh, egotist, a person of low taste, more interested in himself than in me. <laughs> uh, alone, adjective, in bad company. <laughs> uh, that's good. Yeah. So, like, yeah, like, there's a kind of a tradition of doing this kind of thing. Like, didn't Douglas Adams also, he wrote, like, a dictionary of words that should exist but don't and stuff like that yeah and then um i think voltaire kind of had like a uh sort of dictionary too where he just kind of gave his own definitions and um yeah i think he borrowed this kind of setup from earlier things like like voltaire and then he was also copied um a ton you know that he Mm -hmm. all of these were like weekly entries into like a newspaper 
Oh, like the, okay. I, mean, yeah, I think yeah. maybe the San Francisco Examiner or something. So, and then they put them all together eventually, like in 1911. Uh, <laughs> a couple other ones. Um, acquaintance. A person whom we know well enough to borrow from, but not well enough to lend to. <laughs> equal. <It's very> true. <laughs> equal adjective as bad as something else. Feast. A festival. A religious celebration usually signalized by gluttony and drunkenness, frequently in honor of some holy person distinguished for abstemiousness. <laughs> Fidelity. A virtue peculiar to those who are about to be betrayed. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. That's, a, that, <laughs> that's sort of interesting, like, knowing the history of his, like, getting shot and stuff like that. Kind of yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, idiot. A member of a large and powerful tribe whose influence in human affairs has always been dominant and controlling. And then, uh, likewise, ignoramus. A person unacquainted with certain kinds of knowledge familiar to yourself and having certain other kinds that you know nothing about. Nice. Yeah. Some of these, um, some of them are like little puzzles. And the thing about him is that he's ridiculously eloquent. His vocabulary is huge. Um, he's a master of kind of grammar and perfect kind of technical writing. And he kind of makes me think that he fools me into thinking that like literacy was, you know, all or nothing back then. Either you were dumb or you were, you know, just a fucking genius. <laughs> like, um, but yeah, so those are a few examples from the Devil's Dictionary. It's not, like I said, it's not something to just straight up read. It's cool to pick up, uh, flip through it. You'll have some laughs. a good a, uh, really a good funny. bathroom book. Yeah, there you go. And uh, I have and, the Dover. And before thrift you know edition. it, you've read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have the Dover Thrift Edition, which is like I think it was only like three dollars or something new. Uh, so yeah, worth picking up. Um, but okay, so that's the Devil's Dictionary. You know, that's what he was most known for, other than a, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. But so the main thing I wanted to bring today is probably my favorite work of his, which is really only one part of a larger collection called um, Cobwebs from an Empty Skull, which I, I love that title. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, that's nice. So this was published in 1874. And I want to read the intro to this book really quick. And I always like to, when I, when I, you know, read stuff from the late 1800s, I try to remind myself that even though it feels like a long time ago, it's not that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. So. hundred years before I was born. Yeah. Crazy. All right. Yeah. Okay. Here's the preface. Homer's Iliad, it will be remembered, was but imperfectly appreciated by Homer's contemporaries. Milton's Paradise Lost was so lightly regarded when first written that the author received but 25 pounds for it. Ben Jonson was for some time blind to the beauties of Shakespeare, and Shakespeare himself had but small esteem for his own work. Appearing each week in Fun Magazine, these fables and tales very soon attracted the notice of the editor, who was frank enough to say, afterward, that when he accepted the manuscript he did not quite perceive the quality of it. The printers, too, into whose hands it came, have since admitted that for some days they felt very little interest in it, and could not even make out what it was all about. 
When to these evidences I add the confession that at first I did not myself observe anything extraordinary in my work, I think I need say no more. The discerning public will note the parallel, and my modesty be spared the necessity of making an ass of itself. So this guy just, he didn't have an off switch for yeah. just being a wise ass. <laughs> <laughs> now that might happen if you get shot in the head during a war. Yeah. <laughs> I give him a pass. Give him a pass. But, so, it, the book's called Cobwebs from an Empty Skull. The first section of it is what I really wanted to talk about today. Okay. And that section is called Fables of Zambri, the Parsi, which just means Fables of Zambri, the Persian. Okay. Um, it's a collection of 135 short fables in the tradition of Aesop, mm -hmm. but they're unique in that they contain Beerus's like singular wit and ultra bleak perspective. Okay. But it's, you know, animals talking to each other. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's like fables. It's, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome though. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of them. They're going to be short. Basically they're like little puzzles. He like kind of challenges you to figure out what the lesson is, what the moral is like. And sometimes it's not like <laughs> what you might think, or, uh, you know, you're left thinking about it for a little bit. Or they're just like, you know, they're, they're awesome little stories to take you like 30 seconds to read. Um, okay. First one. A rat seeing a cat approaching and finding no avenue of escape went boldly up to her and said, Madam, I have just swallowed a dose of a powerful bane and in accordance with instructions upon the label have come out of my hole to die. Will you kindly direct me to a spot where my corpse will prove peculiarly offensive? Since you are so ill, replied the cat, I will myself transport you to a spot which I think will suit. So saying, she struck her teeth through the nape of his neck and trotted away with him. This was more than he had bargained for, and he squeaked shrilly with the pain. Ah, said the cat, a rat who knows he has but a few minutes to live never makes a fuss about a little agony. I don't think, my fine fellow, you have taken poison enough to hurt either you or me. So she made a meal out of him. If this fable does not teach that a rat gets no profit by lying, I should be pleased to know what it does teach. And yeah, he always ends what them that way. What does it teach? <laughs> what does it teach, Mark? That's not for me to decide. <laughs> so was yeah, the rat poisoned? The rat was poisoned, right? No, no, he wasn't. Oh. He was just trying to get out. He was trying to convince the cat to let him go because he was cornered. Mm. And the cat, you know wasn't tested that yeah okay next one it is related of a certain priest that being about to sacrifice a pig he observed tears in the victim's eyes now i'd like to know what is the matter with you he asked sir replied the pig if your penetration were equal to that of your knife you hold you would know without inquiring but i don't mind telling you i weep because i know i shall be badly roasted Ah, returned the priest, meditatively, having first killed the pig. We are all pretty much alike. It is the bad roasting that frightens us. Mere death has no terrors. From this narrative learn that even priests sometimes get hold of only half a truth. I think that one's awesome. Yeah, it is. 
is double yeah double meaning the badly roasted i don't know <laughs> he's talking about cooking him he's worried about wasn't being... there like there was a saint or something like saint some one of the saints was like roasted on a fire like grilled wait who was that one of the saints, like Augustine or something like that, was like there was one of the saints who was saint who beat was you know became a saint later. He was like roasted on a spit, not like on a spit, but like on a grill. Shit. <laughs> Shut that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, ne- next. Keep one, going. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I can find that. Keep going. Okay. A sheep making a long journey found the heat of his fleece very uncomfortable. And seeing a flock of other sheep in a fold, evidently evidently awaiting for someone, he leaped over and joined them in the hope of being shorn. Perceiving the shepherd approaching and the other sheep huddling into a remote corner of the fold, he shouldered his way forward and going up to the shepherd said, Did you ever see such a lot of fools? It's lucky I came along to set them an example of docility. Seeing me operated upon, they'll be glad to offer themselves. Perhaps so, replied the shepherd, laying hold of the animal's horns but I never kill more than one sheep at a time. Mutton won't keep in hot weather. The chops tasted excellently well with tomato sauce. The moral of this fable isn't what you think it is. It is this. The chops of another man's mutton are always nice eating. (laughs) (laughs) So these are, yeah, these are things to just read and like ruminate on for a little bit. So like, I don't know, this might not work very well, but I'm going to power through. (laughs) <laughs> the it was saint lawrence and he was yeah. he was martyred by being roasted alive damn <laughs> okay all right read me, an- <laughs> read me another one all right a man carrying a sack of corn up a high ladder propped against a wall had nearly reached the top when a powerful hog passing that way leant against the bottom to scratch its hide I wish, said the man, speaking down the ladder, you would make that operation as brief as possible, and when I come down, I will reward you by rearing a fresh ladder especially for you. This one is quite good enough for a hog, was the reply, but I am curious to know if you will keep your promise, so I'll just amuse myself until you come down. And taking the bottom rung in his mouth, he moved away. He moved off, away from the wall. A moment later, he had all the loose corn he could garner, but he never got that other ladder. Moral. The moral of this is that an ace and four kings is as good a hand as one can hold in draw poker. So the pig took the ladder away? Yeah, the pig killed the guy <laughs> so he could get the corn. He didn't give a shit about the other ladder. But he never got the other <laughs> ladder. No. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, a young cock and a hen were speaking of the size of eggs. The cock said, I once laid an egg. Oh, you did, interrupted the hen with a derisive cackle. Pray, how did you manage it? The cock felt injured in his self-esteem, and turning his back upon the hen, addressed himself to a a broad, a brood of young chickens. I once laid an egg. The chickens chirped incredulously and passed on. The insulted bird reddened in, in the wattles with indignation, and strutting up to the patriarch of the entire barnyard, repeated his assertion. The patriarch nodded gravely, as if the feet were an everyday affair, and the other continued. I once laid an egg alongside a watermelon and compared the two. The vegetable was considerably the larger. This fable is intended to show the absurdity of hearing all a man has to say. (laughs) This is a bathroom book. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it is. All right. Uh, I'm going to go last one. An old monkey designing to teach his sons the advantage of unity brought them a number of sticks and desired them to see how easily they might be broken one at a time. So each young monkey took a stick and broke it. Now, said the father, I will teach you a lesson. And he began to gather all the sticks into a bundle. But the young monkeys, thinking he was about to beat them, set upon him altogether and disabled him. There, said the aged sufferer, behold the advantage of unity. If you had assailed me one at a time, I would have killed every one of you. Moral lessons are like the merchant's goods. They are convey conveyed in various ways. That was good. Okay. And there are 130 more. <laughs> and most of them are awesome. So the whole um, book? It, no, the 130 is just that one section of the book. Yes. But it's like 50 pages or something. Nice. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably my favorite thing he's ever done. And um, I think they're good things to read like a little bit at a time and maybe think about them a little bit. Cause they're all, some of them have twists and some of them have kind of uh, morals or lessons or meanings that you don't really catch on the first time. Does he, is everything that you like that he read, uh, that he wrote in those like short, like snippet type things? Or... No, no. He, he wrote some fiction. He wrote, um, a lot of his war stories are incredibly chilling uh -huh. um, and long form. Uh, I also wanted to point out, he published a book called My Favorite Murder. Whoa. Which is, yeah, I know it's a <laughs> podcast that you're a fan of. So Yeah, shout yeah. Out to, a little shout yeah. out to My Favorite Murder. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, well, we actually we like lifted the form of this podcast from that podcast, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Karen and Georgia blowing up the spot. Uh, that's awesome. So he, like, wow, my what is my favorite murder about the book? Oh, I have no idea. It was uh, no, it was a uh, his first uh, release after his disappearance. So it was uh, like Tupac dropping an album. <laughs> out of nowhere that's that's crazy yeah <laughs> but yeah uh Bierce is incredible and i recommend checking out the book um civil war stories if that's your kind of thing nice um, and just i want to say that he's better than mark twain leave it at that whoa drop the mic better than <laughs> better than mark twain <laughs> all right you heard it here first. Yeah. Better than Mark Twain. Okay, so I guess it's it's my turn now, I guess. Yeah. What do you got? Awesome. Good job. Thank you. Um, so I am tackling one of me, Mark and I's favorite authors, one of Ooh. an author that I think we have in common that in some ways like started this journey, but not really. Um, but he's a big part of it. Um, I am actually doing a, for the first time on this podcast, I'm doing a specific short story 
And that and that short story is from the book Slow Learner by Thomas Pynchon. Pynchon. And oh, shit. yeah, I'm going into Pynchon territory. It was like it's been too <laughs> it's been too scary because as soon as we started talking about the podcast, it was like, oh, I have a million like of my favorite books, and then I was like. Oh, like, like I was tempted as the first book to do Swan's Way, and I was like, yeah, because that's going to be so awesome. And I'll like, no, I want to like get good at it before I like just take up the yeah, my yeah. Books. So this, I wanted to do, I wanted to do something, um, pension obviously from the beginning, but then I was like, I think I want to, I just want to take just the short story called The Secret Integration from his. Uh, I have it. It's a oh, collection. you told me about this one. Yeah. I remember this from the text thread. Yes. So uh, what I probably mentioned to Mark about this specific story is that it gets very like it's almost like Stephen King territory, or God forbid me saying crossing pension with lines of the Goonies, but it's like it has that sort of feel, like a troop of kids. They even have a dog. Which is like so, <laughs> it's so um, suburban um, for for Pynchon. But anyway, um, <laughs> just a little bit of the background. So the story is called The Secret Integration. I'm going to give you a little bit of a background. Um, this, it's just from like a blog posting on a community college website. But The Secret Integration was first published in the Saturday, ne- Saturday Evening Post in December of 1964 after the publication of Pynchon's first novel, V. So he already published V, and then this came out in the Saturday Evening Post after that. Okay. Uh, he has little to say about this story in the introduction to Slow Learner, which is the which is the book that I have, other than it seems to be his favorite of the collection. He calls it his journeyman effort, liking the positive direction of his writing, with the exception of some of his less responsible surrealism. Uh, and I can see where he's where he's coming with that. Basically, Slow Learner is a collection of short stories and um, they they include one called The Small Rain, Lowlands, Entropy, Under the Rose, and then the final one, The Secret Integration, all published between 1959 and 1964 in various places like The Kenyon Review and Noble Savage, um, which were like, you know, literary okay. magazines and stuff like that, small time type yeah. of stuff. Were um, any of them like uh, Cornell? No, no, none of he did. None okay. of them were in, or unless like maybe one of them is just a name that's based in Cornell that we don't. Oh, the Cornell writer. Yep, the small writer. Yeah. Rain. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, so pretty early on. Yeah, secret integration is a really interesting story. Like I said, let me go over like the setup of the story a little bit. The secret integration is about a a group of suburban kids. I think it mentions where they are. Um, but it seems to be a mix of like fall weather, but they may they might be in California because it talks about palm trees, but it also talks about fall weather. So I think it's in a fictional town um, called uh, I think it's called like Mange Bureau or something like that. Um, but the really interesting thing about the structure of the short story is that it's just a cast of kids, basically very Goonies like um, or very Stephen King like. Where, or Stranger Things, if you're 15. Yes, absolutely. Stranger <laughs> Things, for sure. Um, yeah, it does have Stranger Things vibes. And um, 
basically there is going along with uh pension some of the uh names are really crazy in here but the leader of the group of kids is this guy if this is a young guy named grover snod oh and god brace for the pension names brace for the pension names uh another one is named just simply tim he's like the main character slash narrator <laughs> um if you could call him a narrator they have their friend carl um who is uh the child of the first black family that moved into their town. And then they have another friend who's like a big Cartman type, like a big joker, but his name is French, Etienne, ADN. <laughs> um, okay. And they also have a dog that goes around with them sometimes. So it's these four friends. Um, they are pranksters. So like they're basically like the jokers in their town where they like pull pranks and stuff like that. Um, and uh, Grover is a boy genius. So he's basically like they kicked him out of the public school in their town. And then he goes to college Um so he he's, he's a smart guy. Yeah, he's like a smart like they're Dude. basically um like pre like I think they're probably like 10, 11 or 12 or something like that. Like prepubescent like they don't understand some things about the adult world, but then they're also like, you know, really intelligent and stuff like that. Okay. Still um, some innocence there. Yeah, so the theme of the secret integration is that Grover, Tim, Etienne and Carl are sort of just living their lives and they have Everything that would normally go into a normal Stephen King story, they go to um, their clubhouse that's inside of like an old abandoned Victorian house, and uh, <laughs> they they take like a little boat that they salvaged. Um, the the location of their secret hideout is in an old field where there's like local legends about how a soldier haunts the field and stuff like that, and but they know that the soldier's not going to bother them because they're you know the super cool kids that they are and yeah. they have a secret clubhouse in the bottom of this like old abandoned house that kind of has like natural booby traps like when they wander past a chandelier it's like they've never stepped under the chandelier because you know what's gonna happen <laughs> if you step <laughs> under the... it. like yeah like yeah. basically not they didn't they home alone around their base but they also said that there's like there's just like natural disasters waiting to happen in this like, oh okay they just know mansion. the place well yeah yeah okay. so there's like creaky floorboards like spaces where you can see like between like between the floors and stuff like that so it's just a creepy place um the eyes I, of the pictures move yes exactly exactly, nice. exactly that's what that would be in the film for sure um <laughs> the so the whole um story is structured around them going to their clubhouse and trying to and i thought that this was like a really brilliant thing that pension um put in here they basically try to make plans to pull out practical jokes on the town like for instance etienne one evening like stopped up the river near a paper milling factory and they had to stop their operations for a week to like clean out all their equipment and stuff like that yeah so it's basically it's just like a really interesting um kind of set up to a story where these kids are going to pull off basically a prank but you don't really know what the prank is or what their specific goals are i really like the way pynchon describes he's hitting on something in this short story about the difference between being an adolescent and like not fully understanding the adult world but also gaining glimpses of it um 
there's one part that's like really good when they first get to the clubhouse where um he talks about how when you're a kid like that like you get together with your friends and you have all these grand plans but really none of them are actually gonna happen <laughs> like yeah like one priority becomes more important than the next until you've forgotten the list of goals that you had before and nothing gets done so that's very true yeah i really like that i also like how they the way that they that pension describes the clubhouse really reminded me of our of my of our middle school and high school days mark um because basically they have you know a clubhouse that's filled with um like stuff that they stole from the town yeah <laughs> so um i will i will read a paragraph from the story so grover is such a smart boy genius that he goes in and out of town on different days to go to like a junior college where he takes more advanced mm-hmm. classes so it says you never knew what he was going to come back with from college once he'd brought a multicolored model of a protein mo- molecule, which was now in the hideout, along with the Japanese TV and the sodium stockpile, a bunch of old transmission parts from Etienne Sherdlou's father's junkyard, concrete bust of Alf Landon stolen in one of the weekly raids on Mingeboro Park, and a busted chair salvaged from another one of the old estates, not to mention assorted chandelier pieces, fragments of tapestries, teak newels, one fur overcoat they could hang around the neck of the bust and hide under sometimes like in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically like we had, we, our friends' houses all had weird crap that we stole from the yeah. town. Signs, like things from the high school and stuff. Like we would break statues. Like we would have so much shit like from around the town. Um, which, you a know, that, mischievous. Yeah, brought a little bit in this. And that's what these group of kids are. Like they are a little mischievous. Um you know the the one of the friends Etienne is um he's really sort of like the bad kid um there's one part that goes really pinch and crazy which i'm going to read you from now this is actually about the kind of you know people that they roll with and stuff like that so they have their core group but they also know like you know a bunch of kids in town and stuff like that and this is very classic pinchin so i was just going to read this because he drops this into the middle of the story which i feel It feels like a development towards his style. Okay. So Etienne's friends included the Mosley brothers, Arnold and Kermit, who sniffed airplane glue and stole mousetraps from the store, which for fun they would then cock, stand out in the middle of some empty field, and throw at each other. Kim Duffy, a slender, exotic-looking sixth grader with a blonde pigtail that hung to her waist and was usually blue on the end from being dunked in inkwells, who had a thing about explosive chemical reactions and was responsible for replenishing the cache of sodium up at the hideout, smuggling the stuff out of the Mingeboro High School lab with the connivance of her boyfriend Gaylord, an infatuated sophomore shot putter who just liked them young. This is also going to interest you, uh, Mark. Hogan Slothrop, the doctor's kid, (laughs) who at the age of eight had taken to serious after-bedtime beer drinking and at the age of nine got religion, swore off beer, and joined Alcoholics Anonymous. A stepfather who is known as... who what is known as permissive gave his blessing to which the local AA group tolerated because they thought having a kid around would be inspirational. 
<laughs> Nunzi Passarella, who had begun his career in second grade by bringing somehow a full-grown pig into show-and-tell time, a quarter-ton Poland-China sow, in the school bus and everything, and had gone on to found a crazy Sue Dunham cult in honor of that legendary and beautiful drifter who last century had roamed all this hilltop country exchanging babies and setting fires and who, in a way, was the patron state of all these kids. What the fuck? <laughs> so he's introducing some like weird local legends there is a kid in this story named hogan slothrop who is the doctor in this town his name is slothrop and he's his son that's a nod to a reference of the of the main character of gravity's rainbow which is which is pension's most famous one of his most famous novels um so there's okay, a lot on. i i don't know why but when you're describing this group of kids uh-huh. it my mental image was the Burger King Kids Club from the 90s. <laughs> like, <laughs> Kid Vid. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wheels. Totally. I- IQ. Yeah. To- totally. Uh, what? Put them, what else put, you got? Put them Lingo. into that grouping. <laughs> JD the dog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's exactly like that, where they're just like a scrappy bunch of like the local crazies. and Yeah, yeah. Um, they seem know. like cartoon characters. Yeah, they they could easily go on to, you know, you know, end up winning the Little League tournament or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, sorry for derailing. No, no, it's perfect. So another thing, another theme. So basically the whole story, and there's not really going to be any spoilers here because it's all about reading his language and stuff like that. Um, yeah. They go to the clubhouse. They go away from the clubhouse. There's also a really crazy part, and this is going to get into more of the dark side of the story and where you're going to you know, start learning about the subtext of this adolescent world. There's also about a third or a quarter of the story where they go to a hotel with the Slothrop kid who's in Alcoholics Anonymous, even though he's nine years old, and they go and, like, there's a guy in a hotel room named, named Mr. McAfee, and the whole troop shows up there because they're on the lamb from the adults. Like, they, Etienne was going to do something stupid, and then he ended up not doing it. So they're like a, a, they're a form of fake paranoia that the cops are after them and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. So they go to this hotel room where an African-American guy is having withdrawals from alcohol. And he called the local alcoholic and Alcoholics Anonymous group to get support, you know, from a sponsor. But the AA people were all busy, so they sent the kid. <laughs> okay. So that's part of the story. And they go and meet Mr. McAfee. And it's really interesting because, like, one of the characters, Tim, who it's the story is sort of told from his perspective, even though it's third person, he is vaguely aware that the guy is like sweating and losing his mind and in with it and having alcohol withdrawals but it's sort of like swept under the rug with all the other stuff that's happening in the hotel room like and the co- and the concierge the hotel concierge comes by with some cops and they like arrest him and stuff like that and they're just like go home you stupid kids um <laughs> so there's like a big chunk of the story that's about that but I want to get to the reason why it's called the secret integration and why this is a really interesting sort of powerful story, especially for Pynchon, because um, I think it digs in a little bit into um, he does he has a very strict um, strain that goes through a lot of his novels that 
is really interesting prose about inequality. Like, do you remember the part, like, sometimes it's hard to remember everything that happens, like, in Gravity's Rainbow and stuff, but do you remember that part where it's about, like, the, there was, like, a genocide in Africa somewhere? The Herreros. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, he just has this way, I think almost this is, like, related to that dipping into some sort of, like, civil rights, like, violation or anything, like, crazy like that. Because there's a subtext here that's happening, and the reason why the story is called The Secret Integration is because their friend Carl, who I mentioned at the beginning, is the first, is the child of the first black family to move to Minge, Mar- Margeboro or wherever the hell they're from. I just yeah. said it like three times. <laughs> and what's happening in the town, and this is really sad and kind of at the edges of the story, but what's happening in the town is that all of the families are calling Carl's house, calling them the N-word. The N-word is in this story. And also one time when they go by Carl's house, like after they hang out at the um, at the hideout, they go to his house and it's covered with trash. And um, basically these white families are like terrorizing Carl's family because they're the first black family in the town. And when the kids go to Carl's house and see all the trash everywhere they realize that it's the trash from their house their houses oh shit so i was gonna ask if they realized it yeah so they basically like they're like holy shit someone fucked up your yard like that's so sad and then they like start looking around and it's like hey that's like the beer cans that my dad drinks and like then they start going through it and they see that like the mail has like their mom and dad's name on it and stuff yeah so it's this really powerful imagery of like, holy shit. Like, and the reason why it's called the secret integration is because Pynchon is writing from this perspective of like, these four kids just hang out and they hang out with Carl and he happens to be African-American, but they don't see it. And that's why it's called the secret integration because it starts with a new generation of these kids are growing up like around the civil rights movement. So... Mm-hmm. While their parents are being complete dickheads, the title is so powerful because the secret integration is basically like Carl is their friend and that's not going to change. Yeah. So um, there's some really powerful stuff like that. Some of the heart going back, like rewinding a little bit to some of that childish, childish adolescence. I wanted to read a paragraph. Um, this was just really interesting to me. So Tim is talking about what he thinks of Carl and um, the word colored. And basically before this, he asks his friend Carl if he has a color television because no one else has a color TV. And he's like, hey, Carl, does your family have a color TV? And Carl's like, no, dude, like what? How could we like, we don't have a TV. Like, what are you talking about? And then one of the characters kind of says this, which I think is interesting. It says, he did think of Carl as not only colored himself, but somehow more deeply involved with all color. When Tim thought about Carl, he always saw him against blazing reds and ochres of this early fall, only last month when Carl had just come to Mingeboro and they were still getting to be friends. And he thought that Carl was somehow ca- must somehow carry around with him a perpetual Berkshire autumn and a wonderful world of color. So basically, that's like, that's this weird, like, they've taken this word colored and like impinged it on this family and on this concept of who Carl is. And then, yeah, they hear their families talking about it. And Tim's child mind is basically like, yeah, like Carl, the colored kid with about all the colors. 
you know? Yeah, they which in, is, internalize it in an yeah, innocent way. Yeah, they internalize it. And, like, so that that is sort of, like, little tidbits are dropped like that throughout the book, which are really nice. But then it get it gets, like, kind of thrown in your face with those contrasts of, um, you know, the trash in the yard. One of the early things that happens, which is, like, really scary and introduces you to the story, is um, Tim goes to see um, Grover, the genius, and he's just hanging around with his friend or whatever, Um and then he turns the corner. He's about to leave his mom's house. And um, he turns the corner and his mom is on the phone nervously calling Carl's house and leaving like, you know, like they pick up the phone and she calls them the N word and she's like, get out before you get in trouble and stuff like that. Like, we're going to like fuck you up. Yeah. So the kid like sees his mom do that. And it's like really awkward. But then it again kind of throw like it it undulates between this innocence because tim knows what he just saw so basically he goes out of the house like without her permission and like doesn't have to tell her when he's coming back because he just saw her do something fucked up and he knows it Mm -hmm. so he like it says right here um tim shrugged and went out the back door i'm going out he told her without looking back he knew she wouldn't give him any trouble now about it because he'd caught her yeah, it's that shattering of, like, maternal and paternal, like, yeah. perfection. Yeah, so, like, there's this illusion happening where it's like, oh, well, like, you, like, I know you're doing something bad. You know you're doing something bad. But, like, now I get a free, you know, a free ride. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, all, all, lots of awesome little moments like that. Um, some great metaphor in here. And just an overall a really good story. Like, think about everything that I've talked about in the last little bit. And, you know, it's only in my edition here, which is a great edition. And it's also, it's awesome to get this short story collection because Pynchon wrote a formal introduction to it, which is really rare for him. He's out of character just talking about his writing, which like never happens. Nice. So that's, yeah, that's in there. And it's only 60 pages. Um, And so far, you know, I've told you like it has Goonies, it has Stephen King, it has, you know, race stuff, it has... You know, um, Alcoholics Anonymous and all this really, like, fun and colorful stuff that makes Pynchon who Pynchon is. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's got – it's just got everything, and it's it's a great little story. So I went over that for this week. Um, I also found another really cool fact about it online when I was doing some research. Um I'm almost done, basically, The Secret Integration. It's just an amazing book. But I also found some uh, something that I wanted to run by you, Mark. Um, and okay. I, think you might, I think you might like this website, too. But I found this website called Mathematical Fiction. Have you ever heard of it? No. And Mathematical Fiction is... It says it's a list compiled by Alex Kassman, the College of Charleston. It kind of looks like it's an old website, like someone made it for school or something like that. But basically, um, I found the secret integration in there, and you'll understand, Mark, why I wanted to run this by you. But I guess this guy, Alex, um, tries to find themes in fiction that are mathematical in nature. Okay. So let me read this, because Mark, you're, in my mind, Mark is the math genius, because he's an electrical engineer. So <laughs> even though that's probably not the truth, uh, in my mind, maybe you'll understand it more than me. No, no, um, that's the truth. Yeah, yeah, it's the truth. Um, 
Well, you, you there were there were jokes that you got in Gravity's Rainbow that I didn't get. You know, the stuff about like the rockets and math and stuff like that. And there's there's a lot of stuff in this also. Oh yeah, well, well, uh, uh, V has the uh, uh, what is it? Ah, Kilroy, the right. Kilroy like Kilroy was here made out of like the bandpass filter like electrical schematic yeah 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 and um, that was cool <laughs> and there's also that like you know people say that a lot about um David Foster Wallace as well that he had like this mathematical sort of fetishizing you know dropping secrets in and stuff like that so let's see what Alex has to say so he says the secret integration that the title is a pun relating to the operation from calculus, a definite integral of a function, to the controversial attempt to solve many of the problems of race relations in America, the integration of schools. A summary of the plot can be found, and he links out to a Wikipedia, but they make no mention of the mathematical aspect. One character's interest in the definite integral is a running theme throughout the book and also the source of some metaphors. For example, he notes that the vertical lines often drawn on the graph during integration to represent the Riemann sum appear to be like prison bars, prison bars which become infinitely close, preventing any chance of escape. Uh, so yeah, basically he's saying that there's some mathematical knowledge dropped into the secret integration that Pynchon is trying to get. Did, did any of that make sense to you? That's interesting. Yeah, well, um, he's talking about those prison bars. It's like uh, basically uh, calculating the area under a curve mm -hmm. as you kind of turn it into bars, like uh, like a little looks like a bar graph kind of thing. I can see where he's where he's getting that from. Right, so that they, they, it must have been the character Grover who I was talking about, who's a boy genius. I'm sure Pynchon put a few words in his mouth. But basically, the, this guy in this website, Mathematical Fiction, is saying that Grover drops references to um, the secret integration, and he says that the pun is relating to an operation from calculus. So That's awesome. More when I hear that. <laughs> when I hear that mathematical fiction, I immediately think of um, Ratner's Star by Don DeLillo. Oh, okay. It's about I, like a child prodigy uh, mathematician. The only with, uh, the they, only Delilo I've read is uh, the famous the White Noise. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right, so that's it. We're we're over it. We're just over an hour and five, so we're pretty good. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Shitty Book Reports, the podcast. Uh, you can catch us on SoundCloud, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Gmail, at SBR, the podcast, uh, no spaces. Uh, just hit us up with any ideas you have, anything you want to hear, any books you want to cover, anything we fucked up really bad, uh, beyond repair, and uh, we can go back and fix it, maybe. <laughs> um, thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.